All right, good morning. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Uh, I know a number of you. Uh, this is your first time with us at True North, so I want to introduce myself. My name is Philip. I'm also uh, one of the elders here. I serve as the lead pastor on staff. And uh, this morning, I'll be highlighting the story that we just heard from Matthew chapter 20. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can head that way. If you didn't bring a Bible today, that's okay. Uh, we've, we're going to have the verses for you on the screens all around me, so you'll be able to read along that way. If you'd like to look the Bible up on your phone or a tablet, whatever you have with you, feel free to do that as well. Uh, but I want you to know that we understand that for Easter especially, there are probably many people who don't go to church the rest of the year, and you may not know how this typically works, and that's okay. Uh, we're going to help you catch up with us. As you're heading that way, I want to mention something to you. Uh, this is a book called Love Gave, and uh, this is something that if you have a child in our kids' classes this morning, uh, your family's going to receive one of these from us. So uh, I have a six-year-old, and I know that sometimes they wind up with stuff in their hands, and I don't know where they got it. So this is me telling you that they are allowed to have this, and they can bring it home. So uh, hopefully you and your family will have some time, maybe this afternoon, maybe at bedtime tonight, just to thumb through this together. Uh, this is a very beautifully illustrated representation of uh, what went wrong in the world, why do we even need Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he did to fix that problem. So uh, be sure you grab one. If you don't have a kid in kids' classes, maybe yours are too young, or you're a grandparent, or uh, maybe you're a babysitter, and you spend time with kids during the week, we'll probably have some extra of these. Feel free to swing by the kids' check-in desk. There'll also be a table down on the uh, north end of the building, or the west end of the building, excuse me, uh, by our offices where there will be a handful of these sitting out as well, and you can grab one uh, if you'd like to have one today. So I wanted to make sure I would mention that to you. Uh, with today being Easter, we're going to talk about Jesus. Go figure, right? This is his day. Uh, every day, I would argue, is his day. It's kind of funny at a church where we say it's all about Jesus. It can actually be challenging to emphasize him more than normal on days like today. But one way we can do that is we can turn our attention to his teaching. Not just how he shows up in other parts of the Bible, but we can actually highlight and dig into things that he has said. And so today we're going to do that. We're going to look at one of the more disruptive things that Jesus communicated to people while he was on the earth before he died. Uh, I have two points today that I think Jesus is going to make in this story. If you're a note taker, you can write these down in advance and then be looking for them as we work our way through the passage. First is this, that for the unfulfilled, Jesus offers hope for the unfulfilled, which is probably most of us at some point in our lives. We're going to dig into that a little bit today. For the unfulfilled, Jesus offers hope. And then second, and this is the warning, every parable comes with a warning, for religious gatekeepers, Jesus is humiliating. And we're going to talk about what that means. What is a religious gatekeeper? And why would interacting with Jesus ever be humiliating? So one chapter before where we're going to read this morning, in Matthew chapter 19, we get the context for the story that Jesus told. In this chapter, at the very end, uh, there's a man who comes to see Jesus, and he has a question for Jesus. He wants to know if Jesus is supposedly this great teacher, if he's this amazing rabbi in Jewish culture, then what's the way to get to heaven? Because that's your goal if you are religiously Jewish, if you're pursuing the God of the Old Testament. You're trying to get into his presence. That's all you want. So the man approaches Jesus and he says, look, here's what I've done. I'm relatively successful in my job. Uh, I have good relationships. The people around me, their lives are better because I'm here. And as a bonus, I haven't murdered anybody. So I'm doing pretty good, right? What do I need to do to get in? And Jesus communicates to him that he has to sell everything he has. Ouch, all of it? Yeah, all of it, Jesus says. He says, your stuff is getting in the way of you being made right. And he says, once you sell everything, take the money that you make, and I want you to give it away to the poor, 
And as you do that, it's implied that you'll give away your standing in society, you'll give away your safety net, you'll actually end up giving up your identity. And if you'll do that, if you'll give up your identity, then you can follow me. And I don't think Jesus is saying, I will allow you to do that only if you sell these things. I think he's saying you'll be capable of doing that only if you sell these things. I don't think Jesus is trying to lay a test before this man to pass or fail. I think Jesus is communicating right now, because of what you have, because you're wealthy, because you're relatively successful, you're insulated. You're insulated from the suffering of people. And even though you just told me, Jesus is saying to this rich man, you just told me that you've been serving people, that you've been loving others more than yourself, I'm telling you that you are keeping that suffering of those people who need your help at arm's length from you. You're not really engaged in it. You're not really connected to it. So he says, do that, and you'll be able to follow me anywhere. Now, if you are familiar with the Bible, or if you've even studied Jesus like in a philosophy class in college, you know what this guy does, right? He walks away. He just leaves. In, in your Bible, in English, we translate the Greek term uh, into the English word either sorrow or grieved. You'd see that at the end of Matthew 19, that the man was sorrowful, that he was in mourning. Really what the Bible is trying to convey to you and I is that he started to panic. Like, there's not really a good Greek word for anxiety. That's more a modern thing that we all carry around all the time. And so this guy is responding that way, though. He's imagining his life without his stuff, and he's going, who would I be? What would I have left? I worked so hard for these things. What am I supposed to do if I don't have all of this? I want to bring this to you, God. I want you to use the things that I have. And Jesus says, no, I've got a different plan. And I'll give it to you, but you've got to let go of the things that you're finding your identity in. And I think it would be easy in this story to blame this guy for being greedy, right? We look at him and we go, well, he just loves his stuff more than he loves God. But I don't really think that's true. I think that he's not that greedy or he wouldn't have come to Jesus publicly and claimed to be selfless, right? He must have some kind of reputation that backs up the idea that he loves his neighbor or he wouldn't be willing to stand in the open air in front of all these strangers and claim to be a good guy. I think it was that in spite of him having done some things in his life to sort of check off his love thy neighbor box, I think he was still insulated from sharing and suffering. And when Jesus said, sell your possessions, I don't think the young man sensed Jesus attacking his wealth. I think he could feel that Jesus was telling him he had to lose himself, to let go of his identity, and in following Jesus to gain a new identity. Because if you're not a church person, and if you're not somebody who really understands what Easter is about, Easter involves a cross, it involves a tomb, it involves a stone that rolls away. Yes, there are angels. Yes, some disciples lock themselves in a room. Jesus appears to them. All of these things are true. But those things are the vehicle that gets us the purpose, the meaning of Easter. And the meaning of Easter is that God can make anybody new. That's it. That's what all of it's about. All of Jesus' teaching is instructing people how to be new, how to live in a new way. And then Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the things he actually did, they paved the way for us to live that way. So that's it. That's the sum total. Jesus even says another place in the Gospels that if you were to take all of the Old Testament, which is much longer and much harder to read than the New Testament, and you were to summarize it, that the summary of that would be that you would love God and then as a result you would love other people. And I don't know how many human beings you know, but that's not the natural state of anybody anywhere. It takes newness, it takes transformation to become a person who can do that. So Jesus invites this rich man to this cliff's edge with him, and he says, jump, and I'll catch you, you'll be fine. And the guy freaks out, and he says, no, I can't do it, he walks away. And then we don't see him again in any other part of the Bible. He never shows back up, we don't know what happens. But it's safe to assume that he goes home and keeps all of his things and doesn't give it all away to follow Jesus. Now that's a heavy interaction. And you're sitting in this room and you're thinking, oh no, the pastor's going to tell me that I got to sell all my stuff or I can't come to church here. And that's not what I'm going to tell you. If the Holy Spirit's putting that on your heart, you should listen to him. But I'm not trying to say that for him, okay? He can speak for himself. But this is a heavy interaction. And in the same way that it's a little bit almost 
what the right word is here, it's just shocking a little bit that Jesus would be so hardcore that the bare minimum entrance fee into God's kingdom is to give away everything you have. You're not the only ones feeling that weight. His disciples are feeling that weight in this story as well. And so when this rich man walks away, Jesus is kind of going about his day, and one of the disciples approaches him and he says, Jesus, if this guy can't get into heaven, if, if he who has everything, who's wealthy and successful and well-liked and, and, and you know, just reasonably getting it done, successful, if he can't make it in, then what hope do we have? And I think what they're hoping Jesus is going to do is kind of reveal some secret, or he's going to say, well, that was just an allegory, or I didn't really mean that, that was just something I was doing to kind of be extreme and teach a point. But Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 19, in verse 26, this. Jesus looks at the disciples and responds to their question. He says, with man, this salvation is what he's talking about. This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter, who is the most vocal disciple, said in reply, look, Jesus, see? As if Jesus doesn't know. We have left everything and we followed you. What then will we have? He asked Jesus. Now, it's in response to that question that Jesus taught the story that we read this morning. And I know it probably seems like we're walking a really long road before we even get to the thing that we're supposed to talk about today. But it's easy to misinterpret the story that we're looking at today as a story about employment or how God rewards people who work hard. Jesus is communicating this story. He's speaking to his disciples all in response to what happened with the rich man. Jesus is still having an identity conversation. He's not having a belongings conversation. He's not having a wealth conversation. He is speaking about the way that those things can become existential to us, not just they themselves. Now, when Jesus looks at his disciples in the verses that we just read, and he says, yeah, it isn't possible for anybody to do the thing that I'm telling you to do, that's not uh, terribly reassuring, is it? <laughs> I don't think that's what the disciples were hoping for. Um, Jesus confirms what they suspect. It's not just hard to get into God's kingdom. It's impossible. People who have a lot hate losing what they have, don't they? I would say people who have a little also hate losing what they have. But God has to offer us something valuable enough that we would be willing to lose everything else to get it. That's what Jesus is getting at. And only people who have embraced a life lived in last place will see that they have actually, by giving their lives away, attained the highest honor in God's economy. So that might be the most confusing idea Jesus has said so far to his disciples, and in order to clarify that, he tells the story that I want to read to you again. So Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, this is Jesus explaining to his disciples the order of operations in the kingdom of God, God's generosity, and how you can be first or last. He says this, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And through the rest of the story, Jesus is going to use terms like the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour. That can be confusing if you assume that the Hebrew day began at 12.01 a.m. like our day does. That's not the case. When Jesus speaks about early in the morning, he's talking about roughly 6 a.m. our time. So whenever he says the third or the sixth or the twelfth hour, just add that many hours to 6 a.m., do a little bit of math in your head, and you can figure out what he's talking about. It'll help the story make a little more sense to you. Because if you're thinking, everybody goes to work at one in the morning, of course they're upset. I would be too. They don't actually start their work day until a normal time. So he goes and hires laborers for his vineyard, verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, a denarius is a fair daily wage. I'm not going to get into currency conversion with you today, but you can trust me that this is a normal, typical wage for a manual laborer. After doing that, he sent them into his vineyard. And then going about the third hour... 7, 8, 9, 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And we think marketplace, and we probably think of like stalls of fruit and handbags and knockoff coach 
uh, paraphernalia in other parts of the world, right? But this marketplace has more to do with bartering than it does with selling. It's not so much a farmer's market as it is like a place where everybody comes in the morning and then people who have money just shout out, hey, I have this job and I'm willing to pay this much. And then four or five people walk over and they take that job and they go and do it and life goes on. So that's what we mean when we say marketplace. So he sees them standing idle in the marketplace, verse four, and he says to them, you should go into my vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give you. Notice there's a little bit of a difference here. The first group, he negotiates a full day's wage with them. They know what's fair, he knows what's fair, he communicates to them, this is what you can expect. For the second group, he's not that specific. He just says to them, and it's kind of implied, three hours have gone by, so you probably won't get a whole day's wage, but I'll be fair, I'll take care of you. And obviously the master is good, his reputation is such that his word is good, and they believe him, and so they go into the vineyard. Going out again about the sixth hour, which is noon, and the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and he found others standing. Now, why does the 11th hour matter? You're thinking we've been going in sets of three if your brain is like mine. Why would we just do two? Because what Jesus is trying to communicate is at the 12th hour, the day is over. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is the average workday. When we get to 6 p.m., everybody's off the clock. They can go home. They're done. They have an hour or two of daylight to do chores, and then they can go to bed and start over again. The 11th hour is 5 p.m. It's one hour before the day ends. That is important for the sake of this story. He found others standing, and the master said to them, he asked them a question, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us, or no one will hire us. He said to them, then you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard, the same man, the master, said to his foreman, his overseer, call in the laborers and pay them their wages. But begin with the last group, and then work your way up to the first And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received, each of them received a denarius. If you're not following closely, the people who came to work last, who only worked an hour, received a full day's wage. That is important. So the first point that I think Jesus is trying to highlight to you and I today is that for the unfulfilled, Jesus offers us hope. There are five groups of workers in this story. It's a little bit hard to keep track of. For the sake of the argument Jesus is making, we only really care about group one, who work the whole day, 12 hours, and group five, who work only one hour, who start at 5 p.m. and get off the clock at the same time as everybody else. You'll notice in verses three and six that we get some insight into these workers. Jesus says that each time the master approached groups two, three, four, and five, he found them idle. It wasn't like he went and recruited them from doing other quality work somewhere else. They were just standing just waiting. They missed the boat on all the early morning jobs, and now they're hoping maybe somebody else will need a hand, and they'll come to the market and offer them a chance to get some work done so they can be paid. It's also interesting that we get no other describing uh, factors about these guys. There's no adjectives used for them other than the fact that they are workers, which means, from their perspective, they are very comfortable being thought of as just labor, as just manual labor. They came to this marketplace on purpose, willingly, to be hired to do work, so they obviously think of themselves as workers, And other people go to the marketplace to find them without anybody needing to hop on Facebook and check and see where everybody's meeting up today. They just know if you're going to find a worker, you're going to find them in the marketplace. So it's important to me that we embrace the idea that on an identity level, these men are workers. It's what they're good at. It's what they want to do. It's what they got up that morning planning to do with their time and with their day. But they aren't working. They can't do what it was that they were made to do. They can't actually be who they are. This is interesting to me because the conversation that sparked this story, remember, was the rich young man who approached Jesus and asked that question, who couldn't seem to separate himself from his stuff. Jesus is still commenting on our identities in this story. 
He's still talking about who we are, not so much what we do. And Jesus is not, like I told you earlier, telling a parable about employment. This is still a story about identity. And on an identity level, most of the people who I know in my life are in some way also standing in a marketplace idle, waiting for something to do. Here's what I mean. I think that for the people in this story who are waiting to be hired, Jesus gives a very good, and of course he does, right? He's Jesus. He's like a master teacher, the master teacher. But he gives a very good analogy for the human race, for all of humanity. In our culture, where you and I live in these United States, the loudest voices in our culture are always calling for some kind of what they would call positive change, right? Things need to be progressing. Things need to be moving forward. We need to right wrongs. We need to raise up people who have less than us. We need to bring down people who have more than us. These are strong cultural narratives that you and I live in the midst of. And as believers, as Christians, we often join in with those things. We try to speak up for what is right, and we should. That's not a bad thing to do. We try to fight back against corruption. We try to fight back against oppression, and we do our best to make up the difference where we find people who are disadvantaged or who are underprivileged. If you don't believe me, let me recommend a website to you, uh, twitter.com. Hop on Twitter, check what's trending, and you'll find out who we are burning at the stake today because of their crimes against humanity, right? This is what we do. We find a person, we identify a thing they did wrong, and then we destroy them so that they can never do any more damage. And I think that the heart behind that, though it's probably deeply selfish because we're broken people, I think there's some level of desire to do right. There's some level of desire to correct what has been wrong. We would say that that is our work as people. Yes, we go to work, right, at an office, or like I work at this church, some of us work at Fred Meyer. If you're a millennial, you might work by streaming video games on Twitch. That's fine, whatever brings home the bacon is cool. But what we want our lives to be about is producing positive change in our culture. This is what we really want. We wanna do the work of equality, and I think we really believe that if we can do that, if we could all work together, that we could change the world. So here's my question. We've been doing this for a minute or two now, right? It's probably been 10 plus years that this has been our cultural moment. It's getting louder and more pronounced. Social media has exemplified that, but social media is not new anymore. More than half my life, I've had some kind of online presence, and and you may be able to relate to that as well. The question I have for you is if we're doing all this work, if we're trying so hard, if we're putting all of our effort behind these movements, why is the world not better? Is it working? I mean, I think we're having more conversations about things that are wrong, but it doesn't seem like we actually have less wrong to talk about. And and I want to be clear with you. I think we've done a good job in these United States to pass some laws that represent some oppressed subsets of humanity, and that's good and right, and we should strive for those things. Domestic violence, racism, these are things we should be able to talk about, especially in the church. But I don't see those things going away. I don't have a date circled on my calendar in 2025 when those things finally finish because enough of us yelled about them for long enough. Church, I'm not trying to put pressure on you that you've wasted your time. What I'm trying to help you understand is that if that is what we believe is important, if that is kind of our high watermark for a successful life in culture and society, then we are standing idle in the marketplace. We've worked other places. We've tried hard to jump in with cultural movements, with people who've said, if you would just believe these things and speak this way and and take these words out of your vocabulary and add these words in, then it will fix all of this. We tried it. Graciously as Christians, we've done our best to receive that and do it, and nothing is changing. It feels like things are still getting worse all the time. I think that Jesus is trying to connect with people who are like us, who have been this way for a long time, unfulfilled. 
Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's reminding them of who they were before he called them. He's saying, remember, you were fishing all day long, all the time. You caught fish, you ate fish to live, you got up the next morning, you did it again. Where was your life going? Who were you helping? Matthew, who wrote the book that we're reading, was a tax collector. He was an outcast in his culture. He was a traitor to his people nationally, living in their midst. Jesus is looking at him and saying, do you remember who you were? Do you remember where you were when I came and found you and invited you into my vineyard to do my work? We are unfulfilled, and this is true for those of us who are pursuing cultural moments, but it also applies to anybody who's looking for something that they just can't seem to find. And I would be willing to bet that even if you don't connect with the idea of these cultural movements, there's something that you've been waiting for that isn't here yet. Something in your life. Unfulfillment can look like hating your job, but needing the money too badly to leave. Some of us find ourselves there. It looks like saving and planning for pregnancy in your new marriage. You have this master plan, and then you find out that infertility has stolen that dream from you. That's unfulfilling. Being unfulfilled leaks into the mind of every stay-at-home mom, every working man who feels underappreciated by his family, and every teenager and college student who has tried and failed to find their identity in their sexuality. We just keep looking. We just keep turning over more stuff and hoping that we find underneath it the secret thing that we haven't found so far. And as we live these lives, we stand in the marketplace of these United States and we wait for someone to come by and give us something to do that is worth doing. That is how we connect with the people in this story. The rub happens because then Jesus does come by. That moment may be happening for you right now in your life. Maybe you didn't want to be here today, but you're here to get your mom or your grandma off your back. Okay, I'm glad you're in the room. I mean that. But when we have an encounter with Jesus like that rich young man did, he communicates to us, yeah, I can give you something worth doing, but it's going to be my way and it's going to be my plan. And it's going to actually cost you something. You're going to find yourself investing with your time and your energy and your life into other people, not just getting what you want from other people. And it's easy for us to say that we believe in that, but it's hard for us to actually do it. This is the point where if a person is going to reject Jesus, it typically happens here. They've asked their questions, they've sought out Christianity, they've read a little bit of the Bible, and they finally have an encounter with God, and when they do, they panic. The, the same anxiety that was in the heart of that rich young man, they feel, and they walk away and go, I can't, I can't do this, God. You can't take everything from me. I want you to fix who I am. I don't want you to take it away and give me something new. But to follow Jesus is to unfollow yourself. And if you are going to do his work, then he gets to decide what movements matter, not us. He gets to decide that. He decides when and how justice comes about. And he even gets to decide what justice is. It's the point of friction in Matthew 19, and it's the point where we arrive if we encounter Jesus personally. But here's the good news. The good news is that the hope of what Jesus can do, the change he can create, the justice he died for, and the meaning that he'll give exceeds whatever we have to lose along the way. I want you to look back at verse 6. Hope comes into play here, but it's easy to miss, okay? Jesus isn't just demanding something for nothing. He's giving something amazing in return. Verse 6, Jesus is telling the story. He says, in the 11th hour, the master went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. Because no one has hired us is incredibly insightful. If you are a worker, if you get up early to work, and instead of doing work, you lean against a wall in the marketplace all day while everybody around you gets hired out from under your nose, something is wrong. There is a problem happening. There is a reason, okay? It's not like there's not enough work to go around. Four times, 
Four times the master of the vineyard goes back out of his vineyard and hires more people because there is so much work to do. Okay, probably it's either harvest season or it's time to prune all the uh, grape bushes, the vines. And so there's much to be done for these people to still be standing idle at the end of the day communicates that there is something wrong. We don't know what it is. Are they dishonest? Did they steal at their last job and now they have a reputation for that? Are they just sick, maybe? Are they, are they too old physically? They can't do it anymore? We don't know, but we know that they failed on some level because nobody wants to hire them. That's their answer. And so not only are they unfulfilled, we kind of live in that state without Jesus, but they've gone so far that they're now hopeless. They're not chasing anything else to find that fulfillment anymore. They're just, they've just accepted it. And this is where some of us are today as well. By not being hired all day long in a busy season, their suspicions about themselves are being proven true. They're not just outliers in their culture, they're rejects. And I think it's meaningful, so meaningful, that the master of the vineyard does not negotiate pay with this last group at all. They don't ask for it. Every other group, the first group, they negotiate exactly what they're going to be paid. Groups two, three, and four, he communicates to them, I'll give you something fair. Just know that I'll take care of you. You're going to receive something. When he meets these people, he says, why are you out here? They say, we don't have any purpose. And he says, here's some purpose. Get into the vineyard and get after it. And they don't say, are you going to pay us? They go, okay. Maybe they're thinking it's only an hour, right? The workday's almost over. Who cares? Maybe to them, this is an opportunity to work their way back into the good graces of the other masters of vineyards. Maybe this is their chance to prove something, to improve their resume, to make themselves better. Jesus gives us hope in the same way that the master of the vineyard gives these workers hope. Some of us know what this feels like, don't we? We feel that we're too old to create meaningful change, or our health is so inconsistent that we can't really help anybody else. All of our time is spent on our own selves. Or worse, we've been so beaten down by bad marriages or our children or, frankly, our addictions that we've just given up. We'll go to church once in a while. We might sign up occasionally to feed the homeless, but we have stopped expecting it to make a difference. That is the fifth group of workers. That is where their hearts and minds are. They didn't expect anything else. They're just hanging out. They're just waiting for something to happen, for someone to happen to them. And so Jesus, I believe, comes to us in the same way. He asks us the same question. Why do you stand here idle all day? And if we're honest, our answer is the same as their answer. Because nobody wants this mess, Jesus. That's why. Nobody else has even noticed me here. Nobody sees me. Nobody cares. Nobody wants what I have. I'm a negative net sum. I am only a burden on the people around me, Jesus. I know there's work to do, but what am I supposed to do? It's too late for me. I'll just wait around right here. But what does the master do when he meets those people, those who are the most unfulfilled to the point that they have become apathetic cynics? He invites them in. He gives them meaning, he gives them purpose, and then he pays them. And he doesn't just pay them one-twelfth of a day's wage. He pays them a full day's wage for just a little bit of work. And on top of that, he pays them first so that all the other workers can see what he's doing. They go from unfulfilled, stuck in the consequences of the lives that they've lived, whether they're old or sick or dishonest, to being fulfilled and then even being honored by the master, restored to equal footing with the hardest workers in the vineyard. For the unfulfilled, Jesus offers hope. The master in the story, who represents God himself, gave those workers a chance to be legitimate, and then he covered up all of their needs by paying them a day's wage. There's no penalty for them for working less than the others. It's not the duration of the work. It's not how hard they've worked. It's that he called them into the vineyard that makes them his responsibility. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to you and I that it's not the blessings of following Jesus that are supposed to be our primary concern. 
This is why we reject all forms of what we call the prosperity gospel. We don't put a quarter in the vending machine of God's mercy and hope to get the right blessing out of the bottom. Jesus' invitation to everybody everywhere is to join him in his work, and then he'll take care of you. That's what the good master says. I will do what is fair. I will do what is right. And then surprise, surprise, he goes above and beyond. That's been my experience with Jesus every day I've known him. So we have to ask ourselves, if we're still standing in the marketplace waiting for something worth living for to come by and offer us a chance to matter, could it be happening right now? And what will we do if so? How will you respond to this Jesus who invites all people everywhere to step into his vineyard and to join him in his work? At True North Church, we've said that the work and the mission of God is to reconcile all people everywhere in all of creation to himself. That's all we're trying to do. That seems like a big task, but it happens in a million tiny moments throughout our days. That is what the work of the vineyard is. That's the burden of the day, the heat of the sun that these people are going to complain about soon. And it's good work. It's work worth doing, and it's work that God will equip you to do. That opportunity to be a part of what God is doing is what we call the good news. It's what we call the gospel, that Jesus died and he was raised this day, 2020-something years ago, to seal all of that and to swing the gates of that vineyard wide open. That's the hope that Jesus offers the unfulfilled. Now here's the warning. Let's read in verse 10. We've got to move quickly. So the people have been paid. The foreman did his job. He paid a full day's wage to the people who only worked one hour. Jesus continues his story in verse 10. He says, now, when those hired first came in from the fields. They were probably the furthest out, doing the hardest work. They thought they would receive more. They just watched everybody else get paid what they were supposed to be paid, so they're expecting a bonus. Maybe that seems right to you. But each of them also received a denarius, a single day's wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying to him, this last group worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the master replied to one of them, very interesting, he pulls maybe the mouthiest guy aside and has a one-on-one conversation, he calls him friend. He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Didn't we agree to this, right? Take what belongs to you. In Greek, it sounds like he's saying pick up what belongs to you, which implies that this guy in a little baby fit threw his money on the ground, like as a protest to, to the master. He says, pick up what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker in the same way that I gave to you. Not more. It's the same. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So then the last will be first, and the first will be last. For religious gatekeepers, God's generosity is humiliating. Because today is Easter, uh, I said this to you earlier, but I'm assuming that some of you don't really want to be here today. That's okay with me. I'm glad you're here anyway. I don't think God's wasting your time. Um, But because you are here, those of you who I might have trouble finding out in the world, there's something that I want to say to you. If you're not a person who would consider yourself a Christian, a believer, a church person, whatever label you think all of us have on and you don't, I'm speaking directly to you. And frankly, this is something that probably all of us who call ourselves Christians should say to you at some point in our lives, but uh, I'm the one with a microphone, so I'm going to do it for the rest of us today. If you have ever been oppressed by a Christian, I am sorry that that happened to you. If anybody has ever treated you badly in Jesus' name, if anyone has ever rejected you because they think that they are better than you are and you don't belong in the middle of what God is doing, I apologize for all of us. That should have never happened to you. I'm sorry if anybody has ever done anything to you and then blamed their bad behavior on God. What is an unfortunate truth, and it's a reality that you deserve somebody in the church to acknowledge, is that a lot of us who call ourselves Jesus followers are functioning as gatekeepers. 
we're really comfortable keeping really bad people out of what we have going on because frankly, the thing that we love most is our own comfort. We like how this is running. We like people who come here to look like us and talk like us and smell like we do and believe the same things that we believe. And we have very little margin for people that don't fit into that box to come here and then get right, to find Jesus and then, then him change them. And so I'm sorry for that. I apologize. If I could spend the rest of my life saying sorry to people who've been burned by Christians, I would. Because too many of us live in this way. I haven't been a pastor for a very long time, but I know a lot of Christians. <laughs> and, and I know that Jesus' story could have ended in verse 9, right? But it's a story about people, so of course it didn't. Of course something had to go wrong. These workers, these people who were called by God first, these men who were already a part of what God is doing, they respond to God's mercy and generosity in the lives of other people with malice and jealousy and anger that eventually becomes disgust to the point that one of them would go, this, this wage that you promised me, it's worthless to me because now you're making me equal with these people. You're gonna invite these people in here? They didn't do anything. They've been standing around the marketplace doing nothing. They've been spouting garbage, stuff that goes against what you say is right, God. How are you gonna bring them in and make them part of this family now? I don't think so. I've been working harder, I've been working longer. There are shades and echoes of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son all over this parable. So church, I'm gonna talk to you now for a second. Some of us become religious gatekeepers and we live in a way where we don't want anybody else in on what God is doing. And so when God does that, we get humiliated. We feel embarrassed. If you don't believe me, I mean, ask yourself why six months ago a young man and his wife stood on this stage and communicated to you that they were going to go start a church for the homeless. Why didn't we just set up something where the homeless could fit here? Why do there have to be churches for the homeless? Why do there have to be congregations where some people are older and some people are younger? Why can't we all work together? Because we think we know better than God. The lie that we believe when we create boundaries for people that Jesus didn't make is we believe that God still needs our help. Church, the Messiah already came. He's done. That's what today's about. It's over. God does not need you at all. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your opinions. He doesn't need your recommendations. But he wants you. And the reminder for you and I is that we ourselves, though it may have been a very long time, have been where the people are that God is calling in now today. We lived there too. We came from the same place. We have the same ingredients, the same problems, the same sin. For religious gatekeepers, God's generosity is humiliating. The last thing I want to point out to you is just that receiving the wage at the end of the day, this is not where grace happens in this story. It's easy to misunderstand. This is where we see, the wage is where we see God take care of people who are already a part of what he's doing. The invitation into the vineyard is where grace happens. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? When God says to you, come and join me in what I am doing, that is the moment where he makes you new and able to do that work and a part of things. After that, he'll take care of your needs. And he is a good master and he will be fair and you won't want for anything that you need. God can save anybody from anything and just like the master of the vineyard is allowed to choose what to do with his money, God can have mercy on whomever he wants to with complete disregard to any of their past victories or failures. He fixes all of it. When God invites us into his kingdom, he makes us brand new and Jesus died for nothing less than that. So we need to pray today. We need to pray on Easter that God would change our hearts, that he would guard us and that the warning of this parable would land and take root in our lives. Some of us may need a healthy dose of humiliation because we've been standing at a gate that Jesus didn't ask us to protect. 
turning people away that he's been calling to, who might have finally reached that point where they are willing to jump off that cliff with Jesus and give it all away. And yet there's somebody there grabbing their hand and going, hold on a second, people like you have to get in this line and need to take a bath and then they can jump. We can't do that to each other. We find Jesus first and then he cleans us up. So let's learn from him. And if you're a person today who would like to be somewhere else and not in this room, if you find Jesus or Christianity implausible, what I'm asking you to do is take that chance on him. Just try him. You won't regret it. As we sing together, as we go our own ways this morning, just speak to God. Speak to him in your mind or your heart and ask him to make himself known to you. Ask him to get you out of the marketplace of bad ideas and cultural movements and into the vineyard with him. I can promise you that he will bring you through the gates that he died to open and you'll never have to search for hope again. Let me pray for you. Father, we're here because you welcomed us. You've invited us. And I pray that all the little idols in our hearts, whether our Easter clothes look good, whether our kids were well-behaved, how frustrating it was to get out of the house this morning, God, all those little things that eat at us, that dig away at our attention span and our hearts, the part of us that we want aimed and focused on you, I pray that you'd shut all that up, please, God, for us. Let us hear you clearly. Let us sense your presence. We very simply want to be people who live like Jesus. Make us able, please, God. Convict us, lead us, change us. And I pray that today, a day where we gather in particular to celebrate what you did on the cross and then your resurrection from that death, that we would remember that the point of the story is that we're made new. And now we get to live without ourselves, having died and been buried with you, God, and raised again. We love you. We trust you to do these things in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.